Have you ever been part of a big claim that just couldn't be backed up? Well, it was just this summer when the Ashes cricket were going along and I was sat at the dinner table with Howell and Emir and Howell made an off-the-cuff remark. Isn't it incredible how far these boys can throw a cricket ball? I have to be honest, I agreed with him. I think it is very impressive how far professional cricketers can throw a cricket ball. Ems, on the other hand, wasn't quite as impressed. Really? Doesn't seem that hard, it doesn't seem that far, he said. And so we started digging into it. How big is a cricket outfield? How far would they need to throw it from the boundary to get to the keeper? Do they throw it without a bounce, with a bounce, and all these sorts of questions? The conversation carried on until essentially the point is we laid down the challenge to Ems that he could throw a tennis ball from his childhood home, his current home, all the way up the road to my childhood home, maybe 50 metres away. It was a big claim, a claim that I doubted, a claim that Howell doubted, but a claim that Emir was certain that he could achieve. So we found a ball, we went out onto the road and we let him have a go. Well, not only did he fail to throw it from the one house to the next house, but it took him three full throws to throw it that distance. It was a huge claim that he was making in his own abilities and one that he could not back up. Sorry, mate. Um, but that sort of illustrates for us our next I am in the Gospel of John. And what I am this morning contains two huge claims. A claim about Jesus and a claim about us, as we've sort of seen all the way through. And in order for Jesus to make these claims and for these claims to be even credible for true, to be true, it's going to require us redefining some pretty important terms in our life and our thinking. This claim, the next claim in the I Am series, is made in the midst of a story of loss and mourning. And we can read about it if we turn to John chapter 11 and begin in verse 1. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, the sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going to go there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I am on my way to wake him up. Then the disciple said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. 
Jesus, however, was speaking about his death. They thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. So what is the story that surrounds this big, huge claim that Jesus makes? Well, Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, a close friend, the entire family to Jesus, has died. And it seems like, it seems like Jesus knew that it was coming knew that it had happened and that he cared deeply about it. A little bit further on, we read these words, Jesus standing at the tomb wept. And the Jews who had come to comfort the family remarked this, see how he loved him. This isn't a story about Jesus being indifferent to our suffering, indifferent to our grief, indifferent to loss when we encounter it. This is a story of Jesus himself experiencing the, the heart-wrenching, the gut-wrenching grief of losing a loved one. And it wasn't just Jesus who cared naturally and obviously, it was Mary and Martha that cared. And Martha lets Jesus know as much. We read down there in verse 20 and 21, as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She's desperately sad that this Jesus who she knows and who she has such confidence in to make an impact. This Jesus who she's perhaps witnessed healing folks of all manner of diseases and ailments and disabilities if he had been there, he could have made a difference. But now all hope has been lost for her to spend a moment again in her brother's company. She cares. And then in verse 23, Jesus gives the sort of comfort statement that we often give one another when we experience loss. This is what Jesus says to Martha, saying, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus turns to her and says, your brother will rise again. It's the sort of thing that we would say as Christians to one another when we experience loss. 
confident in the eternal resurrected life that Jesus has brought for us, we would comfort one another with the sort of words of, they're with Jesus now. We will see them again. Can't wait to meet them in glory. And for many of us, that does bring comfort. They're not just words out there. They're words that affect us in here. And in the passage, Martha is affected. Martha is impacted. Verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know. You know, it's a true statement from Martha at this point. This is the sort of thing, the sort of theology that we believe. It is the testimony not just of Martha in this story, in this moment. It is not just the well-meaning words of encouragement that we give one another, but is the testimony of all the scriptures that baked into what God is doing in human history, what Christ is doing in human history, what awaits each and every one of us is a real, physical, eternal life. There's something in the, the popular imagination of heaven, of eternity, that's lost that. But make no mistake about it, the scriptures teach so clearly that life continues beyond our physical death, and that more than that, that what we're anticipating in the end when Christ comes back and makes all things new is, if I can be so strong in a statement, an even more physical life than the life that we experience now. More physical in the sense of it's certainly not less physical. It's still a life of touching and seeing and smelling and having and eating and feasting and singing. But it's a life, a physical life, which isn't hindered by the brokenness that has come into our world by sin. It's a life that isn't hindered by people like Lazarus succumbing to, to sickness and dying. It's a life that isn't impacted and affected by scorching heat and thirst and hunger and sorrow and sin. In that way, we can say it's an even more truly physical life than anything that we have encountered. That is the Christian hope. Not for pie in the sky when we die, not for floating around on clouds, plucking at harps, not for some ghostly disembodied eternity somewhere else, but real meaningful life, more meaningful life, in a recreated world like that which we know at the moment. So Martha makes a true statement. That's important for us to understand. But what is truly amazing and makes Jesus' statement, which follows so huge, is that he has something better. He has something better, he says, than just physical life, resurrection life at some later future date. Martha said to him, verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus turns to her and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, I don't know whether you've heard that. Certainly you've heard that. It's it's a, a, a part of our typical um, um, 
the words that we use in, in funerals and at times like that, perhaps you've read John's Gospel before, perhaps you've heard someone preaching and teaching through the I Ams, it's definitely familiar to us. But I wonder if you've ever been struck by just how odd the words that Jesus uses are. It kind of strikes us, I think, as poor grammar. Not I have brought or I will bring or I provide for a resurrection at some later date on the last days, as Martha believes and as we understand from the whole of the scriptures. But I am the resurrection. Not there is resurrection near me or around me. I am the resurrection in the life. It feels like poor grammar to us because of the categories that we have in our head. Moreover, what he goes on to say about death and life sort of feels like bad algebra. How can A not equal B and B equal to A and back and forth and one who lives will never die and even if they do die then they're still alive? This is where we get to Jesus making huge claims about himself and us and for our categories and our definitions to be really remade. Let's think about the comment from Martha, the true comment from Martha that Jesus is responding to. Let me just paraphrase it a little. Martha says, I believe he'll rise at the last day. What is she really saying? She's saying, isn't she, I know that he will be again. I know that he will be again. She's also saying that at the moment, she believes Lazarus is not. I know that he will be again, but at the moment, he's not. I trust that at some future point, he who no longer is, will be. And Jesus turns to her and says, you've missed the point entirely. It's not simply that there is a resurrection to come, true that as it is, but resurrection has come and I am it. And for that to make any sense, it requires that we redefine our understanding of what life is and what death is. Here's the old definitions. Or maybe rather, I should say, the current, the present definitions that most of us would have. That if you have a pulse, if there is breath in your lungs, then you're alive. That's what to be alive is. Have a pulse, breath in our lungs. And so in that scheme of things, Lazarus is definitely dead. Because he has neither a pulse nor breath in his lungs. But we gathered wherever we are this morning, are very much alive because we have both. But Jesus says that simply will not do. Our understanding even of who he is requires us to redefine those things. See what Jesus has been up until this point and will carry on slowly reveals to folk is this, is that life is not about our pulse or our breath or our animation. Life is about oneness with him, regardless of those things. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father in the presence of his disciples. And this is one of the things that he says. This is 
eternal life. This is the good stuff. This is what it's all about. That they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the life. Jesus has all the way till now and will do, continue afterwards, be redefining how we even understand life as not being about pulse and breath and movement, but about our relationship with God, the Father, the Son and the Spirit. That's what makes this passage seem like poor grammar. That's what makes it seem like difficult algebra, hard to comprehend to us. But that's what he says. That's what he says. He says that what determines life or death is belief in him, is unity with him, is being joined with him. That actually we should be able to consider Lazarus bound and laid in the tomb with the, the stone rolled over it as being alive presently. And I know our response is, well, how can we... How can we consider someone to be alive if their body is so obviously dead? Now let me make sure that we're clear on this. The answer is not that the body is unimportant. Okay? Martha's true statement, he will rise again. The end of all things, the goal of salvation is that we would continue bodily physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all of these things which make us us, that they continue and they abide? The answer is not that the body is unimportant. The answer to why we find it so difficult or why we can still consider Lazarus to be alive even though there are such obvious signs of death is that actually we've been quite happy knocking around only having half a picture in line in our mind, haven't we? Because for all of us, the norm has been that when someone is alive physically, though they are dead spiritually, that doesn't strike us as a contradiction. That it still feels sensible and normal to describe that person as alive, though they are dead. And so really, for us to come to this passage and say, well, what, where is Lazarus? What is Lazarus? Is he alive or dead? He's alive is simply to readdress the balance and to say that what is truly important is his relationship with Christ, his relationship with the Father, by the Son, through the Spirit. You see, we exist in a world as if death is the absence of life. That's when death comes into us, when life is taken away. But what Jesus is revealing here in this I am statement, I am the resurrection and the life. We see that life is actually the presence of him. We normally exist as if death is the absence of life. But Jesus is saying that life is the presence of him. It's our union with him. You might describe the entire mission of Jesus as this, that Jesus entered the land of the dying to transfer us to the land of the living. That we are not alive people, we are dying people, if not dead people already. And Jesus came to transfer us to the land of the living. And I said, haven't I, that Jesus has been revealing this. Jesus has been showing this. He will go on to show it. It's not just in this one statement. Think about the I am's already. What did Jesus say? I am the bread 
of life. I am the light of the world. Believe in me and you will have the light of life. I am the gate. In me there is life and life abundant. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life, my life, so that the sheep can live. And now, literally, in the face of what we call death, Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. That isn't something to be waited for. That is something that can be had in me. And yet we still struggle because to each and every one of us, life is simply drawing breath. Life is going around and eating and walking and lying down and getting up. And life is those things. But as Jesus has picked, he's shown us, isn't it? Sharing with us that unless we're eating him, we are not alive. Unless we walk following him, we do not walk in the light of life. Unless we lie down in his fold under his watchful care, then we cannot be alive. We're going to see in future I Ams when he speaks about the vine and the branches and the connectedness that life comes down 100% to our relationship with him. There's a technical term that's used in theological circles which describes this being one with Jesus. It's called union with Christ. And it's a glorious doctrine. It helps us to understand how he can pay the penalty for our sin, how we can uh, anticipate resurrection just as he was resurrected and will come again, how we can be alive even though we are dead and so on and so forth. Union with Jesus. That by faith, we are joined to him. It isn't some third party over there doing things for our benefit, but it is us in him and him in us. And one of my favourite places to go to see this, to hear about it, to understand it, unpacked and applied is Romans chapter 6. Paul is speaking about the life that believers are supposed to carry on living when they're in Jesus. And he looks at baptism and he's describing baptism as this portrayal of being buried in the waters and being raised to life again. This is what he says. We were buried with him. We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Not speaking, Paul is not speaking about a future event. He's speaking about a present reality, about life lived now. We know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we may be no longer slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. It's now a wonderful description of this true thing that Jesus is saying here. The one who believes in me even if he dies, even if his pulse stops, even if his breath stops, he lives. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? He asks. She tells him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the anointed, the rescuer, the saviour, the fixer, the son of God 
who comes into the world. You are the bringer of life. And it means that when a believer encounters the going out of our light, that death, when we're joined to Jesus, is completely reframed. Did you notice at the start of the passage, it carries on, um, it's an expression that's used in the letters and the book of Acts, disciples and apostles spoke about this way, that Jesus doesn't use death as his description of what's happened to Lazarus. He says that Lazarus has fallen asleep and that he is going to wake him up. He's not speaking in the sense that Lazarus has lost consciousness, but he's speaking of it in terms of this is something temporary. That the animation that we're used to has temporarily been suspended. Because how should we think of, how should we speak of and approach death? We had a funeral in the church on Friday. We lost a dear brother in Wynne Owen. How, how should we speak about death when we encounter it? Well, for one thing, we live in a culture that sort of wants to deny death. We, in our culture, want to live and exist as if death isn't a thing. And so I think it's quite important to say death's name when you're there face to face to it, as John and myself were, give glory to God, whereas we know in past. It's an ugly thing. It's a horrendous thing. It is not a wrong thing for us to be saddened deeply. Jesus was. He wept. And those around could tell from his physical response to encountering death, the, the slumber of his friend Lazarus. They could tell from his physical response how much he loved him. I think our culture would rather us to use softer phrases to speak about it. Oh, they've passed away. They're no longer with us, as if they're on a journey. No, I think we should have the courage to speak the word death, to not think that using that word is, is, a, is a dangerous thing. In Christ, death has been defeated, even though it still exists and it is ugly. We should name it. But we should also be a people who understand it fundamentally differently. Speak about it differently. One of the good things about the English language is that we're allowed to use synonyms, different words which mean the same thing. And so while we should still be brave enough and bold enough to say the word death, really when we're speaking about the loss of a brother or a sister, perhaps we should go back to using this sort of language, that they've fallen asleep. Not a sense of a loss of consciousness, but some temporary departure from our interactions. But I mean, these claims are all well and good, don't they? Emir claimed that he could throw a tennis ball 50 odd metres when the truth was he could barely throw it 20. Jesus here claims that those who believe in him will not die. They are alive, even though they die, that Lazarus bound, embalmed, buried, that he is alive. It's a heck of a bold claim. So what happens? Calls Mary out, Mary joins him. We read about Jesus weeping. This is where we pick it up in verse 38. 
Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. A cave with a stone lying against it. Remove that stone, Jesus commanded. Martha told him, well, he's already been in there for four days. There's going to be a stench. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me because of the crowd standing here. I said this so that they may believe that you have sent me. And after saying this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Two huge claims about himself, that he is the resurrection and the life, about us, that we aren't alive until we're one with him and that we continue to be alive even when we stop drawing breath. But where's the proof? Well, here's the proof. Because Jesus doesn't speak to a dead man and tell him to come out. He speaks to an alive man. Someone who is presumably safe in the hands of the Father. And he says, Father, bring him out of the tomb. Dead people cannot hear that voice. A dead person cannot respond. And yet, out walks Lazarus. Well, what does this all mean to us? What's the point in spending already 30 minutes in a passage like this? Well, let me first of all ask you this. Are you resurrected? Have you been brought from death to life? There's no good thinking that just because you've got a pulse, just because you can breathe, that you are truly alive. Jesus says that we are only alive when we feast on him. Jesus says we're only alive when we walk with him. Jesus says we're only alive and able to continue in life when we are under his watchful gaze and care, when we are covered by the sacrifice of the shepherd. Jesus says that we are only alive when we believe in him, when we know the Father, we know the Son whom the Father has sent. Are you resurrected? Or are you just a dead person wandering around in the, the land of the dead? There's nothing big, there's nothing clever, there's nothing hard that you need to do. You simply need to come to Jesus. He asks Martha, do you believe? She believes. She believes and she sees. I wonder, do we believe? Do we see? Christ who has the power to, to breathe life back into the dust. The one who brought light uh, breathed life in the first place, breathing it again to keep us today and tomorrow and into eternity. Come to Jesus, feast on him, walk with him, trust in him, rest in him. This is where we find life. But for those of us who have found life, who have heard his voice, who have come out of the tomb, I do love this final little detail for us. Other than maybe rearranging some of those compartments in our brain and redefining some of these terms. What's the application for us? I love that he, that he tells Lazarus, essentially, to get changed. Take off your grave clothes, 
for goodness sake. They aren't befitting someone who is alive in Jesus. You turn to Paul in Romans. This is entirely the point that he's making. Why he starts speaking about union with Christ. He says there are lives that are befitting of being one with Jesus. And there are lives, there are clothes, there are existences that simply aren't. It would have been bonkers, wouldn't it? For Lazarus to carry on the rest of his life covered in all these wrappings, these symbols of death. Because he's not dead, he's alive. So get them off him, get dressed. But how much do we continue in this body of flesh, this body of sin? Following the, the world, following Satan, following our own selfishness. Brothers and sisters, if you are alive in Christ, put those things off. Put those things away and dress yourself in the righteousness that we have in Jesus. Dress yourself in the eternal life that begins right now. What does that look like? It looks like love. It looks like peace. It looks like patience. It looks like generosity. It looks like humility. It looks like kindness and long-suffering. It looks like being a peacemaker. It looks like being people who offer hospitality. It looks like the Jesus who we meet in God's word in the scriptures. It does not look like bitterness. It does not look like envy. It does not look like greed and selfishness. It does not look like turning a blind eye looks like compassion it looks like forgiveness it looks like mercy and grace so take those grave clothes off and dress in the clothes of the living the living God who walked amongst us who is the resurrection and the life